All right, hit that billboard. Three, two. Please silence all electronic devices. Mr. Speaker! I have said this since the end of June. I'm surprised that the entire budget was held up over one policy issue. Lord, strike me down if I vote for this bill. You are making a mockery of this process. You are deceiving all of North Carolina. Your leadership is an embarrassment to the history of this great state. Any further discussion or debate? From the Carolina Inn in Chapel Hill, this is the WUNC Politics Podcast. I'm Jeff Tabiri. And I'm glad to be taping an episode of the podcast here in front of 300 of our listeners. Welcome, everybody here. Welcome if you are listening on demand, wherever you found the podcast, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify. We are rolling our two podcasts together in this taping. Typically, you get that long-form, one-on-one conversation on a Tuesday, and then on Friday, it's Becky and Rob reviewing some of what happened in North Carolina politics. So this edition will be Becky and Rob in a bit, but first, we're going to chat with Patrick Woody. He is the executive director of the North Carolina Rural Center. He has been on the podcast before. It's been almost, I believe, two years since uh, Patrick was on the podcast, and we're going to chat about some of the issues that folks in rural North Carolina are facing, among them broadband, a health care uh, coverage gap, and also uh, the census. Patrick, welcome back to the podcast. How are you? Thanks, Jeff. I'm doing well. It's a great crowd tonight. Great crowd. Should be in Chapel Hill. Should be in Chapel Hill. Uh, you, you made a good joke before about, uh, about not, not too many things going on in Chapel Hill. Uh, because of the struggling basketball well, team. Well, actually, should we leave that in the final my, cut? My here, board or? chair asked me this afternoon what I was doing this evening. I told him I was going to the hill, and he said, "Rose, snow, or pink." <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who live in the Triangle, you might not be familiar with those hills. <laughs> I know where they are. <laughs> uh, a big, broad question to start: uh, What's the state of rural North Carolina from your perspective? Well, I think the state of rural North Carolina is really improving. We've seen uh, some real progress on some issues of importance to rural citizens. Uh, But the thing we should know, and the thing I would want everybody uh, in our state to know, is that uh, how you're doing economically in rural North Carolina is largely a function of where you live and and within the geography of rural North Carolina. We're the second most populous state. Um, Only Texas has more rural people than the state of North Carolina. Uh, We're tremendously diverse from the mountains to the coast. At the Rural Center, we serve 80 rural counties. All 80 of those counties have population densities of less than 250 people per square mile. But of those 80 counties, um, uh, uh, 26 of them are in metropolitan statistical areas. So they're really those 26 rural counties uh, have economies that are much more integrated into the metropolitan regions that, that they are adjacent to. And by and large, those 26 uh, rural counties, as you might suspect, are the healthiest economically by a lot of measures. Um, the more um, um, remote uh, rural counties that are, are not along uh, our urban, suburban corridors in this state or near one of our regional cities ar- around the state, uh, are doing less well economically. Uh, but we have seen some real progress. Uh, the recovery from the Great Recession was not really measurable or noticeable for most rural counties until about 2015. The recession ended in late 2009. So um, 
uh, the recovery's been slow. And I think most people are generally aware of how concentrated that recovery has been. And it's really, I think, a concern for the entire state. And it's also a concern um, to the two counties where uh, that recovery was most concentrated. Wake and Mecklenburg have done it extremely well. So Wake and Mac each have roughly a million residents at this point. This is a state of 10 million people. So you're talking about 20% of the state's population right there. And about 4.2 million people live in those 80 rural counties. So about 42% of our population. Now you and I spoke on Monday just to, uh, for me, you have your head wrapped around all of these things, but for me to try to get my head wrapped around some of these things. Uh, of the state's 100 counties, 33, and they're all rural, have lost population since 2010. Our project, and, it, and that number is a number that's been coming down after a recession, population loss is generally a lagging indicator. So the longer you go after a recession, you see that recovery of the population. And we project that by the time the next census rolls around, we, we will have about 33 counties in the state that have lost uh, population. And that next census is rolling around. Uh, this is 2020, year that ends in a zero. Census is conducted. April 1st is National Census, census Day. Day. Census right. Day. Uh, and having an accurate count of the population is important for a number of reasons. I want to hear from you on some of those. I'll just note the, the political ones. You want to make sure that people are, are appropriately represented, whether that's in Congress or in the state legislature. And we, we do know that because of the growing population in, in Wake and in Mac and in other suburban and urban counties, political power, the distribution of it starts to transform a little bit. It starts yeah. to shift. I mean, this has happened in this country for 240 years, but uh, it is shifting in North Carolina. 2020 is going to look different than 2010, as you just noted. Absolutely. So as you all are, are trying to achieve the most accurate count possible, how are you going about doing that? Well, we, we've taken on a, a major campaign of our own to all rural counties to send the message of how important a full and accurate count of every uh, person in, in rural North Carolina is. And we want every person in the entire state to be counted, of course. Um, we know, and the, the NC Counts Coalition uh, tells us, that there are 18 counties in North Carolina that are um, projected to be the most difficult to count because of a lot of factors, uh, the, the makeup of the population, the demographics, um, uh, absence of broadband. Um, you, you, you need to go online to fill out your census, and there's a lot of folks in rural North Carolina that can't do that. So we at the Rural Center have actually adopted two of those 18 counties, and most of those 18 counties, not all, but most of them are rural counties that are hardest to count. And, and we're uh, going on the ground in those two counties, Halifax and Northampton, to really work with local organizations, nonprofits, the faith community, um, everybody, local government, heavily involved, public libraries, incredible way that we reach people in rural communities, uh, to really get all of them involved in making sure that everybody in their community gets um, um, counted. Anything else on the census before we move on? To, well, the, yeah. the one thing I would say about the census is the balance of political power in this state has been shifting for decades. Mm -hmm. and, and we really are, though, at a, at a point where it becomes really noticeable in a big way. Up until uh, 2010, um, a majority of, of um, people in this state, from the, really the beginning of recorded human history in North Carolina until 2010, we were without question a, a majority rural state. Since 2010, that's not so anymore. 
um, that population's gone from about 50-50 to 58-42. Um, and we're going to continue to see that kind of a trend line. Right. Um, from a political power standpoint, without getting into the politics or who represents what districts, uh, just to give you a sense, we've done a lot of work recently in the Northeast Prosperity Zone. There are 19 counties. It's almost 25% of the land mass of the state of North Carolina is in the Northeast Prosperity Zone. Those 19 counties have 17 members of the General Assembly that represent them. And uh, by comparison, comparison yeah. Mecklenburg County has 17 member members of their delegation to the General Assembly. Wake County has 16. Uh, the one thing I know before that census even happens is that the, that number in the Northeast is going to go down. Mm. There'll be fewer members representing those 19 Northeastern counties, and there probably will be more members representing Wake and Mecklenburg counties. You mentioned broadband a moment ago. I want to shift topics to, to focus on broadband for a little bit, and specifically fast, reliable Internet. Uh, to help us get into this, we're going to uh, pull up uh, a cut from a, a report that Rusty Jacobs did. Uh, this is from a while back. Rusty Jacobs visited some eastern North Carolina communities, uh, and the aim of his reporting was to look at efforts to expand high-speed Internet uh, and, and the access through an agency called the Rural Internet Access Authority, uh, a program called the ENC Initiative. It was part of that. Uh, let's give a listen. Spring Hope in Nash County, Williamston in Martin County, places with quiet, sometimes deserted downtown areas, empty storefronts echoing faintly of a time when these places thrived. We're tobacco-raising people, we're peanut-raising people, the farmers are crying, they're not hiring unskilled labor anymore because they're not able to farm. That's Willa Dickens, Director of Business and Industry Services at Halifax Community College. She's also the county's designated e-champion, responsible for spearheading the ENC initiative in her area. Halifax County's biggest tobacco farmer went out of business this year, and the next largest farmer scaled way back. And that's just part of the county's sad story, Dickens says. We're hurting, and we don't have it that West Point Stevens has been our biggest industry. You remember the movie Norma Ray? That was about West Point Stevens. It'll pass off. It's just temporary. Oh, well, that makes it okay. She's only deaf for one hour. She's only deaf for two hours. She's only deaf all day. She can get herself another job. What other job in this town? This is the only job. That was Sally Field there at the end. Uh, that's a, a cut from a report that Rusty Jacobs did on the effort to improve uh, broadband and Internet in, in eastern North Carolina. When do you think he filed that report? That was 20 years ago. It's 2003. Uh, let's think about some of those communities or communities like them, Spring Hope, Williamston. Uh, where are we today compared to them? Well, where we are today, in the last couple of years, we've made some tremendous progress. The problem is it's not happening fast enough. Um, but the progress has been made for really three big reasons. Uh, the first thing that happened was a couple of years ago, we started a state-based grants program for rural broadband, uh, operated uh, by the State Broadband Office within the Department of Information Technology. It's called the GREAT program. In the first year, $10 million was allocated, uh, was awarded to uh, 14 projects that touched 19 uh, tier 1 uh, counties, a Tier 1 county is the most economically distressed uh, counties uh, in the state of North Carolina, so 19 of those. Uh, second major thing that happened was in the long session of the General Assembly this past summer, uh, a bill passed that really clarified the law 
um, around uh, what EMCs, electric membership cooperatives, could do, uh, making it clear that EMCs could form partnerships to deliver broadband to their customers. Uh, so we have EMCs that serve parts of 75 of our 100 counties in the state. Um, the third thing that happened is we began to see some federal dollars uh, that we had not seen for a long time since about 2011 and 2012. We saw a pretty good chunk of federal dollars come to North Carolina uh, from the economic stimulus bill after the Great Recession. We hadn't seen it. We'd had pretty much of a yeah. drought for a long time. Um, and, and, and we've now seen in the last two months three projects totaling about $25 million announced in eastern North Carolina. Last, last mile fiber to the home um, at serving some communities that are in desperate need of, of being served. So those three things have really made a significant difference in the landscape. Uh, we're chatting with Patrick Woody here on the WNC Politics Podcast. We're taping this event at uh, the Carolina Inn in Chapel Hill. It's part of our uh, Pints and Politics event, the first ever Pints and Politics for WUNC. You can follow Patrick, by the way, on Twitter at Patrick Woody, W-O-O-D-I-E. Uh, I want to chat with you about the health care coverage gap and about the very testy and divisive issue of Medicaid expansion in this state. 35 states have expanded Medicaid. North Carolina is not one of them. This is the central reason why we don't have a new state budget and why Republican legislative leaders and the Democratic governor continue to butt heads. Uh, the legislature will come back in in April. Do you have any optimism or reason to think that we're going to see movement on Medicaid expansion in North Carolina this year? I don't have a great deal of optimism because it is an election year. Um, there also was a recent federal ru ruling um, uh, that affected Arkansas that had to do with work requirements, um, which has also led to uh, one of the major sponsors of a bill that we supported in the General Assembly called the Working Families Act that is actually a state-based approach uh, to Medicaid. It's not Medicaid expansion, but it is a, a state alternative to Medicaid expansion. Um, and that sponsor has withdrawn, and so the path forward is looking pretty muddy right now. Um, I will say we've gone across this state twice in the last three years uh, from our first conversations with 80 counties and the leadership in the 80 counties we serve, and there are 312 municipalities across uh, those 80 counties. Um, one of the top issues we heard over and over again, and I heard it from CEOs of rural hospitals, is the fear of losing the, the local hospital. And we've certainly lost our share. We have 600,000 uninsured um, North Carolinians uh, in, the, in this state right now. We know that that number is disproportionately rural citizens. Uh, we also know that um, the Working Families Act that I mentioned that did carry a work requirement, which uh, we're not crazy about, but we were certainly willing to accept because we believe this is an issue where we need to find compromise. We need to find some middle ground where for the sake of people, we can really move the ball forward. That Working Families Act would have covered 400,000 of those 600,000 um, uninsured. Um, as I talk to rural CEOs, hospital CEOs, um, they are delivering a, a, an unsustainable volume of charitable care uh, in their hospitals. And many of our citizens, because they have no viable alternatives, are seeking their care in the most expensive way possible by going to the, to the emergency room. So we're going to try to approach this argument from a really fact-based 
uh, place and really advocate uh, uh, for all the reasons why we have got to close that coverage gap. Uh, you mentioned the divisiveness and the, the hyperpartisan nature, particularly when it comes to health care. Who's the most unifying figure in this state? Is there an elected official who you look at and you say, all right, I've got a little optimism there. This, this person might be able to... Well, I, I'll, I'll tell you a little anecdote, and okay. it's not directly answering your question, but it's the place we need to get back to. Um, the North Carolina Rural Center wouldn't exist if it hadn't been for Lieutenant Governor Bob Jordan from Montgomery County, a rural man from a, uh, the rural town of Mount Gilead. And Who recently I passed away, right? Yep. Passed away last week, and I had the opportunity to attend his funeral. And the most touching moment of that entire funeral was when the family, and there, you know, Governor Cooper spoke, and Erskine Bowles did a, a great eulogy. Um, we had um, uh, two former governors um, that were there. Uh, and the most touching moment of the whole thing was when the family looked at and acknowledged and said to Jim and Dottie Martin, thank you for being here. This means a lot to us. Jim Martin was the man that defeated Lieutenant Governor Job, uh, Bob Jordan for the governor's race. And yet they had a lifelong friendship after that governor's race, stayed in touch with each other. Um, and to see that happen in that setting in such a meaningful way, that's the place we need to get back to as a state. This is a state of great leadership, great leadership that has come at different times from both sides of the aisle. And we've always been able to work together to tackle the really big issues in this state. And what worries me the most and what keeps me awake at night is I don't see that capacity to solve the really big long-term problems in this state. And that worries me. Make sure you drop a cue mark in the recording there because that right there needs to make, make the final podcast cut. He's a graduate of Piney Creek Elementary School, Wake Forest University, and Wake Forest Law School. Please help me in uh, thanking Patrick Woody for coming on the WNC Politics Podcast. You can keep up with Patrick on Twitter, at Patrick Woody. You can also find out more about those efforts on Census Day by uh, following the NC Rural Center, at NC Rural Center. Uh, you are listening to the WNC Politics Podcast. We will be back in just a moment. Even the old folks never knew Why they call it like they knew I was wondering since the age of two Down on Copper Line Copperhead, Copper Beach Copper kettles sitting side by each Copper coil, Copper Georgia Peach Down on Copper Line Welcome back to the WUNC Politics Podcast. I'm Jeff Tiberi. As we do at this time each week, a discussion about some of what happened in the endlessly wild world of state politics. Here for our discussion are Becky Gray from the conservative John Locke Foundation and Rob Schofield from the progressive NC Policy Watch. Hey there. Hey, guys. Such a treat to be here. Thank you. Live audience and everything. Let us begin with the federal bribery trial of Greg Lindbergh. He's the insurance magnate and mega political donor currently on trial for allegedly trying to bribe the state insurance commissioner. This week, jurors heard secret recordings. Insurance Commissioner Mike Causey cooperated with the FBI 
and wore a recording device creating those secret recordings. Federal prosecutors have made their case. Defense attorneys for Lindbergh and his associates, John Palermo and John Gray, are floating the theory of entrapment and that Causey was out to get the wealthy donor. To what extent are you buying that argument, Becky? I'm not buying that argument at all. Um, You know, when you look at the evidence, and of course, I mean, this is a trial, and so we'll see how all this plays out. But what we do know is that Mike Causey was approached by Lindbergh early on, very soon after he was elected, and with a proposition that he replace some of his employees or a employee that oversaw Greg Lindbergh's insurance companies and was promised money for it. Um, Mike Causey immediately recognized that this was a problem and went to the FBI. I went to the officials. I think, you know, in this very hyper-partisan and in this very divided environment that we often find ourselves in, I just think it's great to see somebody, and Mike Causey happens to be a Republican, I'd be saying this no matter what party he belonged to, but to have an elected official who recognizes what's right and what's wrong and actually acts on it. I think Mr. Lindbergh's got some real problems. Um, and I, I too, uh, commend uh, Commissioner Causey for doing the right thing, although to a certain extent, it's sort of like you, praise, you might as well praise somebody for ro- not robbing a bank. I mean, that, that's his job. I mean, he's a public official. Uh, someone tries to bribe you, it's probably, you know, you should expect that they would go to the FBI or they'd go to law enforcement. Uh, there's some very damning evidence that's been put forth. Um, I think Mr. Lindbergh has got big trouble, and of course, the big political issue that looms over all of this is the fact that Mr. Lindbergh has spread around so much money. He's given money to Democrats. He's an equal opportunity, would-be uh, briber, I guess, but he's also given $2.4 million to the lieutenant governor, who's running for governor, likely to be the nominee. Even the, the woman who's running against him, the state lawmaker who's running uh, in the Republican primaries, questioned what he, why he took $2.4 million. I think we're going to hear a lot more about that in the months ahead. Uh, We are just a few days away from Super Tuesday. Early voting will conclude on Saturday. Seems like uh, no one is missing an opportunity to stump here in the old (laughs) North State. South Carolina primary uh, will precede the North Carolina uh, Super Tuesday primary by three days. North Carolina, the third most delegate-rich state going on Super Tuesday. Uh, What has struck either of you in this final sprint, if anything, Rob? It seems we. It seems maybe that 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 Biden has bottomed out and has started to rebound. Um, it's hard to say. I mean, we had a great uh, session earlier this week at a Nancy Policy Watch event. Tom Jensen, the amazing pollster at Public Policy Polling, told us his latest polling. It's basically a three-way tie amongst the old white guys. It's Bernie and Bloomberg and and Biden. They're all what are they all seventy nine? It's in the well in the poll. Well, 70, yeah. they're twenty two, twenty two, and twenty right, in the poll, right, and they're seventy nine, like seventy nine. Three Bs. Right, the three Bs. Three Bs. Um, so what what Tom had seen was forever was that Bernie was basically flat at around twenty percent. There was 40% at one point for Biden that went down to he was sharing it with Bloomberg, and now Bloomberg has dropped a little bit after his debate performance, and maybe Biden's creeping back up. And it looks like his numbers are coming up in South Carolina as well. He got the James Clyburn endorsement yesterday, a very emotional endorsement, it seems like. Maybe, maybe Joe Biden has bottomed out and is on the comeback trail. Well, I think it's surprising, too, that Bloomberg has come in so strong in such a short amount of time. Now, I don't know whether that's because he offers an alternative ideologically for Democrats or whether it's that's the power of money. Um, you know, we'll say, but that's one takeaway that I've had is that, you know, we've quickly become, it's a race between the three Bs, Bernie, Bloomberg, and Biden. The Democratic primary 
contest is getting a lot of the attention, a lot of the air in the room. Let's set it aside for a moment. Uh, there are a lot of interesting races on the ballot next week. On the Republican side, you have a lieutenant governor's race with nine candidates. You have a, an 11th district congressional seat with 12 candidates. Both of those are likely heading to runoffs. You have a really interesting Republican, for my money, uh, attorney general's primary. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. On the left, you've got newly drawn congressional districts in the, the second district. It, it's now a Wake County district. And also the sixth congressional district, which is much of Guilford County, uh, part of Winston-Salem. We will know come Wednesday morning who the next congressperson is going to be from the second and the sixth district. Give me, after the Democratic circus, uh, <laughs> what is the most interesting race to you on this ballot? You know, I think that the attorney general's primary um, is a very interesting race. You know, Josh Stein barely won that attorney general's race against um, Buck Newton That's correct. in 2016. Um, now he's gotten a lot of national recognition, um, you know, in, since then as he served as attorney general. But I think that the um, Republican candidates for that are really interesting. Christine Muma, who was part of the Actual Innocence Commission, um, Jim O'Neill, who is also a very well-known attorney in district that, attorney district in Forsyth attorney. County. Yeah, thank yep. you. And that's a that's a contentious um, one for yeah, sure. That it is, yeah, yeah, already it's a contentious. And then Sam Watts. So you've got two criminal law experts with a civil law expert on that Republican side. As you mentioned, the lieutenant governor's race. Um, you know, really interesting. And when you've got that many candidates, you know, to get out of a primary, you've got to get 30 percent of the vote. 30% plus one. That's what they're all going to be struggling for. So in those two, we may likely see a runoff later. What is the second most interesting race to you? Well, to me, actually, well, first of all, it's May 12th. That's when the runoff will be. So we'll all be back going back to the polls. If there is a federal runoff. Right. If there are no Oh, wait, you're right, you're right. You're right only you're state right. runoffs. It's April 20th. You're right, it's April. You're right, you're right. Good luck keeping track of all this stuff. So yeah. get that. <laughs> May, April. I, you know... Lieutenant Governor, it's kind of interesting, but, you know, who cares who's Lieutenant Governor? Really? All right, I mean, well, what do you not, got? It's kind of interesting. I mean, that's basically a platform to run for governor later or something else. We've been um, in this room an hour and a half, and we haven't mentioned a U.S. Senate race. Well, that's what I was going to say. The thing that's most interesting, I think Cal Cunningham's going to win. I think he's pretty far ahead. But it's interesting to see, you know, all this money coming in from what is this faith and power pack that's been dumping money into Erica Smith's. Uh, campaign and an effort to sort of lift her up, I guess, presumably to try and make Cunningham have to spend more money. Or may, I mean, I don't think they really think they can knock him down. But gosh, I'm a, I'm very concerned that that's a harbinger of you know that's what this election's going to be about. It's going to be about dark money. It's going to be about fake news sites like we're seeing on Facebook. We've had these crazy pro-Trump you know phony news sites showing up all of a sudden. We've got eight months to go, guys. It's going to be a real Donnybrook, and I think we're going to see a lot of dark money with ulterior motives probably flowing into our state, in addition to just the dark money that's going to you know, support the candidates. Rob Schofield is director of NC Policy Watch. Becky Gray, senior vice president at the John Locke Foundation. Uh, let's give them a Carolina in. Thank you for the conversation. Remember that, as always, you can subscribe to the WUNC Politics Podcast at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever it is that you get that on-demand listening. Stay up to date with whatever is happening in North Carolina politics and tune in to special coverage on Tuesday night when North Carolina is one of 14 states to go in that Super Tuesday primary. Will Michaels on the mic uh, that evening. 
For Becky and Rob and Patrick Woody, I'm Jeff Tabiri. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again soon. Down on it doesn't come as a surprise to me. It doesn't touch my memory. And I'm lifting up and rising free. Down on Coppelline. Half a mile down to Morgan Creek. I'm only living for the